0: My name is Andy, if you're a guest with us, I'm one of the pastors here, and it's a joy to be with you, and would you turn in your copy of scriptures to the book of 2 Samuel? We're flying through the life of David this summer. We're having a, I'm having a great time, hope you're having a great time, and I, I, I'm encouraged by what I see uh, both in the life of David, but also in you as we kind of talk about this and unpack this here together. So 2 Samuel chapter 6, that's where we're going to be this morning. I love to fish. Uh, that's not a newsflash. If, uh, if if you know me, you know that that's true. And so when a friend of mine invited me to go fishing with him recently, I thought this is great. He was going to take me in his canoe to his favorite spot using his techniques. And, and I love to learn. I love to, to explore. And so I, I was in. This is going to be a great time. Now, as I share what happened, I, I need you to know at least a few things about me. Okay. First, I'm, I'm a pretty focused fisherman. And so when I get out there in a boat with a rod in hand, I can be pretty one tracked. I can lose track of time. I can lose track of details and other stuff that might be important. Uh, We'll talk about that later. But second, I have a really hard time not bringing whatever gear I have that might be useful to help catch fish. I like gear, and I tend to bring all of it when I can, but I thought this time that I was being resourceful when I only brought one five-gallon bucket full of tackle and two rods and one cooler, okay? I thought I was being good. Now, the third thing to know is that I'm a large guy, and that's obvious, right? No, no worries about that. That's just the deal. And so, uh, sure, the thought crossed my mind, maybe I shouldn't bring all this gear into this small canoe, and, and maybe this small canoe won't actually support me and my gear, and so maybe I should downsize just a bit more, but, but my desire to catch fish outweighed everything else, no pun intended, <laughs> and so I'll say it this way, my want outweighed my wisdom. (laughs) My want outweighed my wisdom by just a little bit. See, about 20 minutes in, I shifted my weight in my friend's canoe, and I felt this little jolt accompanied by a little creak, and I noticed my seat give way just a little bit. (laughs) That probably wasn't good, but I was focused. I wanted to catch fish, and so my want outweighed my wisdom. (laughs) Then about five minutes later, my seat creaked again, and, and my friend, friend very wisely said to me, you know, there are some good spots to fish from shore. Perhaps we ought to try those. <sighs> but my wand outweighed my wisdom. <laughs> I didn't want to fish from shore. I, we're good, man. This will be all right. We're, let's just keep fishing. Well, then almost simultaneously to my friend's suggestion, I noticed that uh, my cooler was just the right size, that if I wedged it under my seat, I might be able to use it for support. And, and that might have been a good idea, but it would have required me to, to shuffle some things around, and I, and I was just focused on catching fish. And again, my, my want outweighed my wisdom. And then almost simultaneous to that, my friend caught our first fish, and then that, that was it. That, we were all on. We were in. Uh, and so though I heard another creak in my seat, my want Continue to outweigh my wisdom. Uh, stay tuned. <laughs> but friends, does, does your want ever outweigh your wisdom? <laughs> do you ever, you ever get into that kind of a scenario? I, I realize that not all of us are outdoors people, and that's just fine, but, but maybe, maybe you fixate so much on your kids' performance, you want them to do well academically or, or musically or athletically that, that you neglect their character just a little bit. You ignore the creaks in the seat, you know? Maybe your focus is on having the appearance of a perfect family, a perfect marriage. You want want to be able to Instagram it at every moment, but you're ignoring some of the dysfunction that's behind closed doors. You might be ignoring the creaks in the seat. Maybe you get so focused on your career, on your farm, on your job, whatever it is, uh, and and you regularly cope with stress in really destructive ways. Maybe you drink too much or or look at porn or, or you blow up in anger regularly. And you ignore the creaks in the seat. You know, maybe you're, you're so fixated on your hobbies or, or your vacations or having the, the perfect, you know, better homes and garden type house and that all your money goes into that and, and you're stressed all the time about your finances and you're ignoring your creaks in the seat. What, well, what happens when we do that? What happens when we ignore the creeks in the sea? Because they, at first, seem fairly innocuous, right? Not a big deal. Maybe we think, you know what, uh, we can get by. This is a necessary byproduct of where we're headed. But but how long can we manage before those creeks catch up to us? And with that, we turn to a very important text in the book of Second Samuel, in the narrative of the life of King David. So we're going to be in 2 Samuel 6, but but first, just to remind you, in 2 Samuel 5, David has defeated the Philistines. This is a big deal, a big battle. And then he goes on and defeats the Jebusites in Jerusalem, and and everything's going the way it ought to, okay? The nation is united, finally. Saul had a destructive uh, leadership uh, environment. David's popularity is at an all-time high. He's the contrast to Saul. He's leading a unified nation of Israel to experience bounty and blessing like never before and we have this sense that though David has been ignoring some aspects of his face and faith I mean we talked about his wives and his concubines last week not a small thing but generally David's heart is moving in the right direction his heart is in the right place And with that, David remembers something very important, something essential to the life and the health of the nation. He remembers that the Ark of the Covenant, that that place, that that chest where God rested His glory between the wings of the cherubim, that that important aspect of of the the worship of the people, the Ark was not in its rightful place in the tabernacle. The, The Ark... Uh was somewhere else. See, the Philistines stole the ark about a hundred years earlier, after Israel abused it as a rabbit's foot. They they used it sort of as a lucky charm to bring it into battle in hopes that because they had the ark, God would bless them. But of course, God didn't bless them. That's not how it was meant to be used. And so they lost it. The Philistines stole it and they took it with them. But but it's an interesting story. We don't have time for it all, but but it caused all kinds of trouble for the Philistines. So, so they returned it to Israel on an ox cart as fast as they could. They wanted to get rid of it. And so here the, the Israelites headed. And in, and in 1 Samuel 6, when the Israelites first received the ark back into their possession... They still didn't get it. They still didn't appreciate its holiness. And so at the end of chapter 6 of First Samuel, it reads that 70 men looked into the ark. And this was clearly forbidden by God. They looked into the ark. They disregarded the holiness of God as they looked in. And they lost their lives as a result. 70 men. It was catastrophic. And so the people were afraid. They didn't want anything to do with it, and so they essentially hid the ark in a town called Kiriath-Jerim for the next hundred years, until, that is, until we get to the life of King David here in 2 Samuel 6. Now, I mentioned Saul earlier. Saul was David's predecessor. Saul didn't touch it. Saul wanted nothing to do with it, and it it makes sense that that a spiritually innocuous man, a spiritually impotent man, wants nothing to do with with spiritually potent artifacts. He, He didn't know what to do with it. This thing was too big, and so Saul just ignored it. But David is different. And so David says in 1 Chronicles 13, verses 3 and 4, he says, Let us bring the ark of our God back to us, for we did not inquire of it during the reign of Saul. And the whole assembly agreed to do this because it seemed right to all the people. And see, as David considers the significance of the ark, he realizes that the fate of the nation of Israel hinges not on his personal leadership, not on his ability to to provide military acumen, but instead on the centrifuge of God's glory and of God's presence. The, The fate of the nation rested on the fact that God was with them. David understood that. And so David had a goal. Hey, we need to bring this ark back to its rightful place in the tabernacle into the capital city, this newly established capital city of Jerusalem. And you get the sense that at the beginning, david David's pumped. He's excited. He's doing the right thing. He's off to a good start, whatever it takes. And the Lord is blessing him. The people are united. All the people show up on this big occasion. But, but here's the thing. <laughs> Like like me in that canoe, as David gets started, he hears some creaks in the seat. They're they're there. And as David goes for glory, his want begins to outweigh his wisdom too. So check this out. These are David's five steps to glory. 2 Samuel 6, verses 1 and 2. It says, David again brought together all the able young men of Israel, 30,000. He and all his men went to Baalah, which is another name for Kiriath Jerim, in Judah, to bring up from there the Ark of God, which is called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim on the Ark. This is a big deal, church. This is a big deal. It was time to move on from Saul's leadership into a new era, and the first step was clear it was time to reform. David was leading this great spiritual reformation in the nation of Israel, and so he calls the people together, he calls 30,000 men, what one might think would be a battle call. No, this time it's a call to come under the presence of God, to come and pursue God's presence as they go to get the ark. God's presence was to become their priority. (laughs) And see, David's goal was God's glory, and that, that was good. That was a good thing. But church, good goals combined with poor execution can easily bring catastrophe. And I want you to notice David's recklessness here in his pursuit of a good thing. If his first step was reform, his second step was recklessness. Check this out. Chapter 6, verses 3 to 6, it says, They set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ahio, sons of Abinadab, were guiding the new cart with the ark of God on it, and Ahio was walking in front of it. David and all Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord with castanets, harps, lyres, timbrels, systems, uh, systems, and cymbals. When they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark of God because the oxen stumbled. And? <laughs> right? I mean, we, we think... You know, what's the big deal? Here here they are. They're going for the glory. The oxen stumble. That's that's not a big deal. The oxen stumble. The ark starts to tip. Uzzah does what Uzzah's supposed to do. At least one would think he's supposed to do. He reaches out and he stops this beautiful, sacred, important uh, relic of the Hebrew people, this representation of God's glory. He reaches it out and he stops it from falling on the ground. What's the problem? Well, here's the problem. In Numbers chapter 4, verse 15, God had said that when the camp is ready to move, only then are the Kohathites to come and do the carrying, but they must not touch the holy things, or they'll die. That's what God said. And church, the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of God, is the preeminent holy thing in this traveling tabernacle that God gave to the people so that they could experience His presence. And God said, don't touch it. Don't touch it. And he also said in Exodus 25 that that when they carried it, they were to use poles to carry it with Kohathites, not ox carts, okay, and oxen. Now, perhaps David's memory was more recent where he remembered that the Philistines had sent the ark back into the nation of Israel via ox cart. And he might have remembered that and thought, you know, there were some problems back then, but I don't think it was the ox cart that was the issue. And so he might have thought to himself, you know, I bet the ox carts in the days where God gave us the law, I bet they weren't as advanced as the ones we have today. <laughs> And so I bet the technology, you know, it, it keeps getting better and better. Uh, I, and, and I bet God didn't really mean that you had to carry the ox or carry the ark on poles. I bet what he meant was you just are supposed to keep it safe. Okay, let's be reasonable about this. Let's just, let's just update what he said a little bit to fit our culture, T- to jive with the times, right? No harm, no foul. <laughs> I'll, I'll even put it on a new ox cart. How, how's that? I mean, surely God won't mind. But with that, church, David David ignores God's law, as he essentially places a higher value on culture over content. (laughs) I think what he's doing is placing a higher value on culture over content, on expediency over biblical accuracy. And isn't that something that we do from time to time? At least we're tempted to do. You know, we assume that these ant- antiquated ancients, they, they really didn't get us. They didn't deal with the same kinds of stuff that we deal with. Certainly, their issues weren't the same as our issues in modern culture. And so God would never have said uh, the things that he said then, uh, that he, the God would have never said now that which he said then. I mean, we value culture over content. We value our experience over God's direction. Friends, that's a creaking seat. That's a creaking seat. In church, it it isn't that David set out to ignore God's commands. I don't think that's what he was doing. I mean, verses four and five give us the sense of David's genuineness here. He's authentic, he's pumped about doing what he's doing. His heart seems to be in the right place as he celebrates. But, But here's the thing you can be genuine, but it doesn't mean you're not ignorant. You can be genuine, but that doesn't mean you're not ignorant. I suggest to you that, that as David and his men celebrated with all their might, they were very genuine and yet very ignorant of what God had established. In church, authenticity, genuineness, that's, that's critical for our witness. That's critical even in our relationships with each other. We must be authentic. But, but authenticity isn't enough. We need to be authentically rooted in God's Word for us to be aligned with God's purposes. David was going for glory, but he was off the rails. He valued culture over content, and he was genuine but ignorant. And so when those oxen stumbled in verse 6, and and Uzzah reached out his hand, it didn't matter how well-intentioned Uzzah was. He was disobedient. He was disobedient. He ignored God's clear direction. He ignored the 70 men who died earlier. He ignored the creaking seed. (laughs) He was well-intentioned, yet disobedient. And church, in David's passion for reform, he he became reckless. He emphasized culture over content, authenticity over ignorance, and good intention over right action. And for that, there, there was a reckoning. There would be a reckoning. And that's David's third step to glory. I didn't say all the steps were good steps. I didn't say they were all happy steps, right? These are David's steps. Look at verse 7. It says, The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore God struck him down and he died there beside the ark of God. God said, Don't touch the holy things or you'll die. And it didn't matter what Uzzah may have thought he was doing in the moment. As he reached out his hand and he steadied the ark, he violated God's standard and the price was set the bible says the wages of sin is death that's a heavy thing isn't it the wages of sin is death that's the reality of it church we, we love to emphasize god's goodness and, and we ought to we ought to emphasize god's goodness because is god good you bet he is god is good but he's also holy he's also holy church we, we dare not emphasize his goodness to the neglect of his holiness. The, the creeks in the seat were there. David should have known, and Uzzah paid the price. <laughs> and you can imagine David's shock. I mean, this is traumatic. He's going for glory, and then this happens, verse 8. Check this out. It says, Then David was angry because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah, and to this day that place is called Perez-Uzzah. Church, on, on the road to glory, sometimes sin's consequence stops us short. On the path to glory, sometimes, the consequences of sin stop us in our tracks. And it takes a minute to realize what's happening. For David, his first response was anger. He was ticked. God, I'm trying to do the right thing here. I'm going for glory. I'm leading all these people. I'm investing this. What are you doing? How could this happen? This guy was innocent. Come on, God. Makes you a little uncomfortable, doesn't it? I mean, this raw emotion. We tend not to like that, I, I think. Some of us see David's raw emotion, and, and, and you know, we think, you know what, you're not supposed to get angry, especially not at God. And so we assume that rather than displaying our emotions, processing our emotions, God would prefer that we just ignore them, that we stuff them, that we, that we pretend they're not there. And as we hit these crisis moments, instead of working through the emotions, we just avoid them. We quit. If this is how it works, I'm out. I mean, maybe we don't quit like outwardly, but our hearts become severed from the rest of our bodies. And as we stuff our emotion, that that train bound for glory gives way to apathy. Our passion gets lost. But I love this about David. We see this over and over. He's clearly in the wrong here. He's clearly made a grave mistake, quite literally. But, but here's the thing, at least he's honest with God. At least he brings his anger, his emotion out to God. And, and church, that's where it starts. David's mad, he's angry, but he trusts God enough not to hide his anger. And I think that's terribly significant here. Because friends, do you think that God can't see you when you're angry? Goodness sakes, he sees it. God knows everything. He sees us when we're angry. He sees us in every emotion that we experience. And people after God's own heart don't avoid what's there, don't pretend it doesn't exist. Instead, they get honest about it. They bring it out before God. Because when we're honest about our anger and about other sins we're struggling with, then God can do something with it. When we pretend it isn't there, God God tends to leave it to fester and rot and, and decay and do what it's supposed to do. Sin destroys us. God restores us. David was a man after God's own heart. He he was unwilling to pretend, even if he was wrong. And as David expresses his anger, the the gravity of the situation sort of settles in. Verse 9, David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, how can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? Reminds me of Isaiah when he saw the Lord and he said, woe is me. I'm ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. How can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? And church, honestly, looking at ourselves helps us accurately look at God. When we get honest about ourselves, God tends to reveal himself more fully. John Calvin got this, the great Reformation theologian, and he said, nearly all wisdom we possess, that is to say, true and sound wisdom, consists of two parts, the knowledge of God and of ourselves. David needed to clearly see God's holiness so he could honestly assess and and, and repent of his sin. And in that, he began to fear God in a new and a necessary way. And verses 10 and 11 say he was not willing to take the ark of the Lord to be with him in the city of David. Instead, he took it at the house of Obed, he took it to the house of Obed Edom, the Gittite. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed Edom, the Gittite, for three months, and the Lord blessed him and his entire household. Notice three months passed by. Here's more time. In the, in the reformation process of, God, uh, of David's heart. We're not told uh, about that time much. right? We're, not, we're told it moves by pretty quickly, but I think during those three months, David was doing some significant soul work, soul work, soul searching, as he pondered the glory and holiness of God. And as he lingers with the fear of God, the text says that the, the ark brought blessing to its environment, to the house of Obed-Edom. And I think David hears about this and something dawns on him. See, he recognizes something that's very important. The issue isn't the ark. The issue isn't God being unjust. The issue is his sin, his neglect of God, his recklessness. He recognizes that what he did was what caused the catastrophe. His path to glory was reckless. Therefore, it required a reckoning. A holy God requires justice. Uzzah touched the ark. And it was David that created that perfect storm. God was rebuking David for his recklessness. And though David was first angry with God, and then once he, once he experienced the consequences of his sin, he, he became fearful of God. Once he was fearful of God in a right way, that led to a just repentance. David was ready to repent to God. And church, that's how it begins. That's how uh, being restored into right relationship with God through repentance begins. We recognize our sin before a holy God. David's anger led to fear, which led to recognition of his sin, which is the beginning of repentance. And so this, verse 12. Now King David was told the Lord had blessed the household of Obed Edom and everything he has because of the ark of God. So David went up, went to bring up the ark of God from the house of Obed Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. Church, as I I said, David recognized that the ark wasn't the issue. His sin was the issue. Hence, as he deals with sin, as he recognizes it in his life, he once again is free to pursue the ark. It's not the ark that's the problem. It was me that's the problem. Let's fix this so we can go get this. And then verse 13, and, and this seals the deal for me here. It says, when those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. If you weren't convinced before, here it is. David is repenting of his sin. He's offering a sin offering and a thank offering just six steps into the journey. You think they wanted to do it differently? You <laughs> think they wanted to reform David's understanding, I was a mess before, I was reckless, now I'm going to make sure that I'm right with God. He offers the sin offering and the thank offering, and he humbly realigns himself with God's priorities as a man after God's own heart. In church, a heart in right standing comes before a kingdom in right standing with God every time. David knew that that to be the leader of the, the people that God had called him to, he needed to be a follower of God first. And then once he had done that, once he had realigned with God's priority, he, he returned to God's agenda. This time according to God's design and not his. He paid attention to the details. He paid attention to the creaking seat. And in 1 Chronicles 15, it, it describes the process whereby David meticulously follows God's law in bringing the ark back to Jerusalem. Church, Sometimes we're a little bit reckless, aren't we? On the path to glory. I am. I've been there. When we are, when when we discover it, when we we recognize it, there's a reckoning that must take place. And that reckoning begins with repentance. We've got to recognize our sin. We've got to realign ourselves with God's priorities and then return to God's agenda according to God's design. That's repentance. And then what? Well, David took another step. Look at verses 14 through 16. It says, Wearing a linen ephod, David was dancing before the Lord with all his might, while he and all Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sound of trumpets. As the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michael, daughter of Saul, watched from a window, and when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. Church, when we repent, we become free from sin's dominance, from sin's authority, and that brings with it a spirit of rejoicing. Second Corinthians 7:10 says, "Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret." Repentance produces something. It leads to, to salvation that leaves no regret. Yes, the situation with Uzzah was catastrophic. David had to mourn that. He had to process that. But in repentance, David experienced salvation with no regret. Praise God. Therefore, David could rejoice. Church, for us who are in Christ, when we repent, we don't just turn away from our sin, although we do. We don't just turn towards a new ethic. We turn towards a Savior. We turn towards the God of grace, the God who sent his son to shed his blood so that we could be forgiven. And so when we sing, Death was arrested and new life begins, we celebrate the glory and the goodness of God together. That's what God is doing in us. He's bringing us through repentance, leading us to rejoicing. David rejoiced. And he did it in his undergarments. (laughs) Now, that's probably an overstatement. He did it in a linen ephod, priestly undergarments. It wasn't exactly like what we might think of and what sometimes is characterized. And yet, it's very clear that his rejoicing has led to a release of David's inhibition. He's releasing his anger, his fear, his shame. And that's now replaced with God's grace. David has a new understanding of God. And church, when you're marked by grace, when you've been forgiven... You don't care who's watching. (laughs) David dances before his might, with with all his might, before who? Who who does David dance before? Is it before his soldiers? Well, they're there, they they see. Is it before the nation? Well, sure, they're there as well. Is it before his wife? Well, she's up in the window watching. Uh, We'll talk more about her in a minute. But the text says this, verse 14. It says, wearing a linen ephod, David was dancing before who? (laughs) Before the Lord. He was dancing before the Lord with all his might. David had an audience of one. And church, when you're marked by grace, you can't help but release your inhibitions to God's glory. That's what David does here. And he doesn't care who's watching. Verse 17 continues. And then they brought the, the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings before the Lord. See, David's rejoicing in his release to God leads to reverence. Yeah, the, the, the ark was a joyful occasion. Its return to the people, to its rightful place in the tabernacle. This is a joyful occasion, but it was also solemn. Because David remembered Uzzah. He remembered the 70 men. He remembered God's holiness. How could he forget it? And the appropriate response was to revere this holy God, to make more sacrifices. And then verses 18 and 19, after he had finished sacrificing the burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord Almighty. Then he gave a loaf of bread, a cake of dates, and a cake of raisins to each person, and the whole crowd of Israelites, both men and women, and all the people, went to their homes. Isn't that a beautiful picture? I love that. When we're marked by grace, you know, we we, we release, we revere, and then we bless. <laughs> See, David understood that he was blessed in order to be a blessing. This is so different from his predecessor. Saul understood that everybody else was to exist in order to bless him. David understood that his job as king was to bless others, to be a servant leader. He was blessed to be a blessing. And so as a tangible expression of that, David passes out bread and cake to everybody. (laughs) That's my kind of blessing. I love that. (laughs) 2 Samuel 6, verse 20 and following. Notice this, when God gets a hold of someone, not everybody's pleased. Not everybody's pleased. Not everyone accepts the blessing. Look at, look at verse 20 and following. When David returned home to bless his household, Micah, daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and said, How the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, going around half naked in full view of the slave girls and of his servants as any vulgar fellow would. David said to Michael, It was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone from his house when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people Israel. I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more undignified than this, and I will be humiliated in my own eyes. But by these slave girls you spoke of, I'll be held in high honor. And Michael, daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. Church, on the path to glory, there are going to be naysayers. And resisting relapse is going to be critical to your path. See, there are going to be those who see change in you, when you start to follow Jesus. They're going to see things going on in you, and they're going to say, "You know, you're different now that you start started going to church. Now that you you, you did whatever you did with Jesus, and, and you know what? You're just not as fun anymore. Why don't you Why don't you just hang out more? Why don't you Why don't you just come, you know come and do the things we used to do? You're too good for us now. You're embarrassing yourself. I mean, have some balance in in your life. What is it with this Jesus thing? With this church thing? You're turning into a fanatic. Did you join a cult or something? Huh? For Michael, she spent her whole life watching her father Saul. Saul was her model for what a king was supposed to look like. And so when she sees her husband shedding his royal vestments, when she sees him dancing around like a common, you know, a commoner, she's disgusted. <laughs> Richard Phillips says, so poorly matched were Michael and David that at the very moment when he was most pleasing to the Lord, he was most despicable to her. Church, you're going to have naysayers on the path to glory. But David refused to relapse. Now, there's maybe something to learn about intermarriage communication here, I don't know. But I don't think that's the main point, All right. David heard that creaking seat before. And and the temptation to relapse. He knew what, what happens, and so he refused to go back. And so he says, verse 21... He says, I will celebrate before the Lord and I will become even more undignified than this and I will be humiliated in my own eyes. Church, David's five steps to glory were bold and bumbling all at the same time. But in it all, he he let the Lord direct and redirect his steps. And when he finally experienced the Lord's provision, he he didn't hold back. He worshipped. He celebrated before the Lord. And the calling is for us to do the same. You know, uh, just a short time after my friend caught that fish, I made another slight move in my seat. You know what happened. (laughs) Wham! (laughs) And the next thing I knew, he and I were flailing around like fish out of water. Only we were in the water. (laughs) And all our gear started to sink to the bottom. (laughs) We lost about half of it. Four rods. Couple of boxes of tackle, a pliers, an anchor. Whoosh! (laughs) And there we were, sopping wet. I think my friend tried to get my attention, but I ignored the creaks in the seat, and I paid the price. You know, maybe you're you're here today, and you've been on this road to glory for some time. You know, you started out in the right place. You had great intentions. You wanted the best. But along the way, some creaks in the sea started to to try to get your attention. And you ignored them. And eventually it blew up on you. And we don't relish in this. We mourn over it. Maybe, Maybe your drinking caused an accident. Maybe maybe your spouse finally had had enough and wanted a divorce. Maybe your anger cost you your job or your friendship or your relationship with your kids. Maybe you got caught looking at something you shouldn't have or or even in an affair. And all of a sudden, what what once seemed innocuous and inconsequential and, and easily ignored now makes it all come undone. Dear friend, inevitably, In those times even even in times where you're trying to reform you're trying to come back to God don't don't be reckless don't prioritize culture over God's word take God at his word consult his word if you don't know what how to understand it ask somebody grow together in God's word learn it and when you fail and inevitably you will you will. This is, this is what's so awesome about God and about grace. When you fail, allow the reckoning work of God's holiness to lead you through whatever he needs to lead you to bring you to that place of repentance because you know where repentance leads? It leads to joy. It leads to salvation. It leads to rejoicing. Some of you this morning may start to be recognizing that creaking seat. Maybe there's some sin in your life that, that's coming to mind, coming to your attention. Don't, don't ignore it but instead bring it to God. Maybe you've been blaming God for your problems for too long. Let your anger turn to fear. And in the fear of God's holiness, realign with God's priorities. Return to his agenda. And when you do, I'm convinced that you'll be able to join David in rejoicing, in release, in reverence, in blessing. And no one will be able to hold you back. Church, the bread that we eat every month here The juice that represents the blood of Jesus reminds us that there is nothing better. There's nothing more important than being in a right place with Jesus. You know, the next day, I went out to that spot with one of my sons and I brought a different boat, a more stable boat, some different gear. And you know what? It sounds silly. I prayed about it. I really wanted my rods back. And we found them, (laughs) all four of them. We found a box of tackle, the the anchor, the pliers even. I dangled my toes in the mud and there the pliers were. Pretty exciting. I let out a whoop like I just caught the biggest fish of my life. (laughs) All but one box. God was gracious. He didn't have to be, you know. He didn't have to be. He didn't owe me anything. It would have been okay. But you know what, friends? God delights in being gracious to us. (laughs) He delights in being gracious to you. He loves you. And He wants you to experience His fullness. Don't don't try to hide from Him. You get angry, tell Him. Let Him work. Let Him bring you to that place of fear. You, You get frustrated. You get disappointed. You get your heart broken. Bring it to God. He wants to meet you there. And He wants to change you. He wants to help you. To know Him like you've never known Him before. To rejoice in His goodness and in His grace. Church, we're we're not going to take every right step. David didn't. He he failed. But, But people after God's own heart aren't the people that take every right step. We mess up, but we respond to God's correction. We return to the right path. And so church, let's be like David. Let's be slower, maybe slower than David, to drift. But let's be quick to return. When David was confronted with his sin, he returned to God. Let's people who grow from letting our want outweigh our wisdom to letting God's wisdom and glory direct our every step. Amen? Amen, let's pray. Lord, thank you for your grace, for your mercy. Thank you that in your kindness, you saved us up out of our recklessness. Though we fell short, God, you met us in our need through your son, Jesus. And Lord, we couldn't have done it. We couldn't have saved ourselves. We were so lost. We were so messed up. We were so angry. We were so frustrated. We were so selfish. We were so, so many things we were lost, we were dead in our sin, but in your kindness, in your mercy, though the wages of sin was death, though we were just, uh, though you were justified in allowing us to suffer the consequences for our sin, you met us, you saved us, you brought us up out of darkness and into light through Jesus. And Lord, if there's anybody here that has yet to put their faith in Jesus, if there's anybody listening online this morning that has yet to put their faith in Jesus, I pray that today would be the day, not as some emotional high, not as, as some, rash decision but is it a deep understanding that that apart from you we have nothing but in you we have the solution to the to the deepest darkest problems of this life we have forgiveness of sin here we stand lord may we be your people who release inhibition to your glory and to your grace or now as we worship hear our cry And be pleased, we ask in Jesus' name, amen.